0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, February 20th at 1030 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Jen Haberkorn of the Los Angeles Times. Welcome back. Hi, Julie. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let's start today with Campaign 2020. We've just had the ninth Democratic debate. I think it's fair to say that health was not the top issue in what can only be described as a slugfest. But I've watched these debates and a little bit of voting we've had, and it's occurred to me that while the pundits have divided the candidates into liberal and moderate groups based mostly on whether or not they support Medicare for all, the voters seem to be mixing and matching these candidates on a whole lot of other things, including personality. Uh, And meanwhile, no one at the debate said a word about the abortion case that's coming before the Supreme Court next month or the fact that the Affordable Care Act could be struck down in the next year or two. Are all the Democrats playing this
1: entire health issue, which all the polls show is the number one issue
0: for voters? Wrong?
1: Well, I think they are trying to prove the differences between them and the other candidates and trying to stand out in the primary, uh, a primary that is somehow growing at the same time that it's shrinking, um, thanks to Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and so I think that emerging from that primary as the top contestant is the main goal. And so it's not in their interest to talk about things like abortion, which they generally agree on, or the Affordable Care Act case, which they also all agree on. And instead, they are going to fight about whose health care plan can fit on what size piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, last
0: year, I think it's fair to say that only the political nerds were watching. But now we're in the middle of February. People are voting. Super Tuesday is only a couple of weeks away. And you would think that people are, are starting to pay attention. Is there not a place at this point for the Democrats to... To start to differentiate themselves, other than I did hear a lot of candidates say, "Well, I'm the most electable." I think the word "electable" showed up a lot of times in that debate.
2: That's pretty remarkable that health costs are the number one concern um, in within healthcare worries, and you know pretty much broadly um, among the electorate. And you would think that a smart candidate would really peg into that, whether it's a way to talk about Medicare for all or a way to talk about shoring up the ACA, which Alice is right, they all agree on. So there's not much room to differentiate. But you would think that they'd be going after those voters who are telling pollsters, I'm really concerned about health care costs. And that's what's really been remarkable to me watching these debates. I think that,
3: you know, Joe Biden kind of touched on that a tiny bit by Mm -hmm. talking about surprise billing and prescription drugs a little bit. But you're right. they, They really... You know, 10 years after the ACA was passed and became law, we have a lot more gains in coverage, but costs remain such a big concern. And... I think this circular discussion about Medicare for all, you know, with Bernie Sanders saying that, you know, you need to go big and saying that people like Mayor Pete's plan is just the status quo. And then them getting into this discussion over and over and over again, it starts to feel repetitive. It starts to seem like it's not meaningful beyond the beltway. And I think that, you know, maybe Mayor Bloomberg and some of his ads has talked about Donald Trump. I think they need to start having a broader conversation, a more relatable conversation with voters. Now that
0: there's only, what, six of them on the stage instead of 10.
3: Jen is is right
1: that it's weird that the candidates aren't doing a better job connecting the Medicare for all discussion to costs. Instead, they're sort of connecting it to what it's going to cost the government instead Mm. as an attack point. But it's not like the average Democratic voter is a a deficit hawk who's like, gee, I I really (laughs) hope the government doesn't rack up the national deficit more. They're worried about their own personal costs, what they have to pay personally. And I think in some of the past debates, Sanders has done a good job of saying, you know, you go to the pharmacy, you pay nothing under my plan. You go to the doctor, you pay nothing. Um, But that, that wasn't true last night.
0: No, it was not. Well, the debate was in Las Vegas because Nevada is next on the primary list, although it actually has a caucus. And one of the notable things we've seen is this giant civil war in the organized labor community about the merits and or pitfalls of Medicare for all. We saw this to a lesser extent in the fight over the Cadillac tax in the almost 10 years old Affordable Care Act. Cadillac tax gone, by the way. Um, Unions have traditionally negotiated away higher wage increases for better benefits, particularly health benefits. And while Medicare for all promises even better health benefits, those workers will never get back the wages that they gave up to get their good health benefits. Alice, you wrote about this fight this week. It's not just Nevada, right?
1: Oh, no. Um, this This is going to be a major issue going forward. And it's kind of like an everyone is right situation. So Bernie Sanders hit back last night saying, you know, I have a lot." lot of unions who are backing me and are backing Medicare for all. And that's true. There are a lot of major unions in the country who have endorsed the plan and said, look, if we didn't have to bargain on health care, we could put all our bargaining power into demanding higher wages in the future. It's true they can't get back in the past, like you said, but they can bargain for higher wages in the future, focus on working conditions, other things if they didn't have to worry about health care. And health care is a big bargaining chip for employers that they sort of dangle over them and, and threaten in, in these negotiations. And of
0: course, the tax code is set up so that it's a better deal for
1: employers to give more generous health benefits than it is to give wage increases. Right, which which would not be the case under, under the plan. Uh, on the other hand, there are major unions who are really opposed to this who say we don't trust the government to create a better system than the one we have now. The one we have now, we we know it. We've fought for it. And um, you can't just say, oh, I promise that what we create will be better, um, which, is, which is what Sanders said last night. Um, and so, you know, you have this split among labor. And I think this is going to be a major issue in states going forward. We had a piece this week looking at some of the. Primary states coming up with unions on both sides of this issue, including in California, New York, um, and some of the states in the Midwest. And so, this is definitely something to watch as it unfolds. It's kind
0: of a microcosm of the the Democrat divide in general, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and and it's also just triggering a lot of really interesting conversations about uh, labor's role. I mean, clearly, labor has had a hu- still has huge sway among Democrats on the left. Candidates who previously endorsed Medicare for All, whose names are on the bill, backed away from it and said straight up that it was conversations with unions that caused them to back away. I'm thinking of Kamala Harris in particular, but there were others. But also unions are playing a role this year that is different than they did in 2016. In 2016, most of them endorsed Hillary very early, and that didn't go so great. (laughs) And a lot of their rank-and-file members were pissed because they were for Bernie. Um, And so you're seeing fewer big endorsements this time, and you're seeing a lot of this back and forth over healthcare.
0: All right. Well, one more campaign-related issue. There was some really interesting research this week out of NORC at the University of Chicago that found that one in five Americans has given to a medically-related crowdfunding campaign like GoFundMe, and that 8 million Americans have launched their own crowdfunding campaign to help pay their own or a family member or friend's medical bills. Those are some really big numbers what do they say about the state of the healthcare system and these are the kinds of things that also we're not really hearing about on the campaign trail right i mean that that seems like there for the taking
3: Yeah. And I think also I recently saw a statistic that medical bankruptcy and medical debt is about the same as it was 10 years ago when we were talking about the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And so the fact that there is this burden on people, on consumers, and that this is such a big issue, we're going to see this play out more and more. I mean, I, I, you know, it's just amazing to me that we're at this point still. And, and like you said, it is a giant
1: missed opportunity. I mean, the Medicare for All folks could say, you know, we, we had candidates last night who said, you know, I think Biden and Klobuchar said, you know, we need to build on what's working. And a natural response could be, is it working? Look at all these people who are begging for money on the Internet and fi- filing for medical bankruptcy. It's clearly not working for a lot of people. Um, but we, we didn't hear that um, as a talking point.
0: Actually, I, every time I give a speech, I have a line that, you know, we've gone from the problem of people not having insurance to. People having insurance but still not being
3: able to afford to use it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, the healthcare law did provide a lot of things like annual caps, you know, get, getting rid of insurance companies' annual caps and lifetime caps. And there are protections. People have protections on their out of pocket costs in a way that they didn't before. But it's still a major issue. And we've seen also the rise of high deductibles over. This period too, which goes back to a different law that Congress passed before the Affordable Care Act.
0: Although it's partly the Affordable Care Act too, because one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did was it said you're going to have to cover all of these benefits, and the insurance company says, well, if, we, if we're going to have to cover more benefits, but we're, we want to compete for premiums, where does sort of the mm-hmm. balloon pop up? And it pops up on the huge deductibles. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, I want to talk briefly about the biggest news that happened last week, the day after we taped, which always seems to happen, uh, and that was was the appeals court ruling out of Washington, D.C. that the Trump administration violated Medicaid law when it approved Arkansas's work requirement, which our audience will remember, led to 18,000 people losing their health coverage during, what, seven months it was in effect. Uh, The opinion was unanimous and was written by a Ronald Reagan-appointed judge who basically said what the lower court had said, which is the purpose of Medicaid, according to its statute, is to provide health coverage, not to encourage work. So, Alice, you were following this. What happened?
1: I mean, they're going to keep fighting over it in court, keep appealing it all the way up. I assume this has been a major initiative of the Trump administration, um, one of the sort of health policies they've really gone all in on. But I think it's telling that a lot of states that were interested in pursuing this have hit the pause button, pumped the brakes because of these uh, court rulings. They don't want to go through all the expense and hassle of trying to get this through if it's just going to get blocked in court, like with the states that have so far. So we still have court cases pending about the other states. This was related to Arkansas, um, and I, you know I think this is going to play out in the courts. But I think it's it's really telling that. This opinion came down from a fairly conservative judge, and that it was unanimous. Um, so I think that, and it was a really strong opinion. I mean, it absolutely. was not; it was not a technicality, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and the opinion didn't only say, you know, you can't stretch the purpose of Medicaid to include work requirements. He was sort of striking down the administration's roundabout argument that um, the purpose of Medicaid is to just make people healthier, and work makes people healthier. Um, and they were like, no, 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 no. The purpose of Medicaid <laughs> is to get give people health insurance. <laughs> because if the purpose is vaguely to make people healthier, you can justify all kinds of all kinds of things within that.
0: And we should remind people who may have forgotten, because it was months ago um, that we talked about this, that the people in Arkansas who lost their coverage was not necessarily because they weren't working. It's because Arkansas set up this incredibly mm-hmm. complex way of reporting the work hours. So it wasn't that they weren't working. It's that they couldn't figure out how to report the number of hours that they'd worked to the state and therefore were cut off of the program.
1: And and, I mean, there's a lot of other aspects of it as well. I mean, a lot of people in that state and others have seasonal jobs where they work tons of hours one part of the year in agriculture or construction or something, and then they go for a bit without. And under the strict system, you have to have a certain number of hours per month. And that's very hard to do in the modern work world.
3: Yeah, I think in In Arkansas and in other places, I think people just couldn't get through the bureaucracy. They didn't know they had to report. They didn't know how to report. It was a big challenge. And it's worth remembering that 63% of people who are adults in Medicaid do work. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. The administration keeps approving these mm-hmm. these um, waivers over and over again. They've approved ten so far. There are others that are pending, um, but they're being blocked. It's very routine. They're being <laughs> blocked by Judge Boasbach and Berg and um, and he's they, lower court in judge in the lower court. And it was interesting to see that um, Judge Sintel. At the appeals court, the Republican was the one who wrote this opinion and made it very clear that this was, that this was arbitrary and capricious. It did not follow the law. And this is not what we expect um, of Medicaid because it goes, doesn't go to the purpose. And we, we've seen, even though this particular case in Arkansas does not really affect other states, as Alice noted, there are other states that are taking their cues from this and are pausing theirs. So, um, I think Michigan and Utah are the Arizona, only ones. Arizona,
1: I think. Paused.
3: Right? Yes, yes, in Indiana as well, mm-hmm. um, and I think Michigan and Utah are the only ones who currently have started implementing. And they're it not again. not the same. I know right.
0: there's there's an Indiana one that's also sort of a you know kinder gentler <laughs> version of it. <laughs> All right. Well, a a uh, a topic that will continue to give us something to discuss. Um, let's talk a little bit about the state of the Affordable Care Act itself, in particular. Let's talk about California, where unlike the rest of the country, open enrollment extended all the way through January. We got enrollment numbers this week, and enrollment was way up, as in up by nearly half a million people. Now, this is not just because California's enrollment was open longer. Um, the state has a bunch of new policies that drove this. Jen, you're you're, you're a California correspondent. Uh, what? Why did enrollment go up so much and cover California?
2: There were two main things that California did. They reinstated the individual mandate. They uh, California, along with a couple of the other states, did so when the federal government repealed the individual mandate as part of the GOP tax bill. And they also increased the subsidies. So you can kind of think of California as the alternate reality. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, um, this is a lot of things that Democrats would have kept the mandate. They would have um, tried to increase the subsidies, whether they they also have. had a
0: huge outreach budget, right? A yeah. lot of advertising.
2: Yeah, the outreach budget was about five times what the federal government spends for the entire country. So, <laughs> oh um, you're bound to you're bound to get more people. But you're right; new enrollees went up by forty one percent. Renewals were that offset. Renewals, which were down by about. 8%. Um, so really, they're going like gangbusters out there. Um, and they've even extended the deadline to sign up because they're worried that people don't know about the mandate. So they're really doing everything they can to reach out to these populations. And, um, you know, if if a Democrat were to win in 2020, I think we would see the, the, the feds try to do what a state like California is trying to
0: do to, to encourage enrollment and keep the ACA uh, humming. Yeah, there are, what, six states, I think, that have reinstated mandates. But California was That's the only me. one that extended those subsidies up the income scale. I think that was yeah. important, too. We've talked a lot about that cliff where if you make mm-hmm. more than four times poverty, you get no help. Mm-hmm. And, boy, if you get no subsidies, these plants can be mm-hmm. really expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Above 400 percent of poverty, um,
2: the subsidies are averaging about $500 uh, for an individual for a subsidy, which is pretty
0: substantial. Per month? Mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty big subsidy. Yeah. So again, they go what to six hundred percent of poverty, yeah. right? So so a lot more people. So as Jen you pointed out, enrollment is not even actually closed right now because of the new mandate. California is doing what the federal government did back in twenty fourteen, which is extending uh, the opportunity to enroll even further through April. Um, my question is. And you know we're saying if if Hillary Clinton had had been elected this might be what we would see across the country. Could this in theory become the new normal if a democrat is elected in 2020? I mean, is there a way to sort of I mean, the California exchange is working like it, the whole thing was anticipated to and that's I mean, in most of the rest of the country the exchanges are doing okay, but they're not very they're not particularly robust.
3: I think part of it depends on what you see in the Senate, how many senators Mm -hmm. you have that are Democrats and what the House looks like. I think politically it's always more difficult to get things done through Congress than things that you can do through regulations. But there are a lot of things that they can do just on their own through executive power in terms of just advertising and outreach and extending the sign-up period and that sort of thing. Um, so I, you know, I I think that watching California is very interesting, and um, you know, we'll see what happens going forward. I mean, there are so many different ways that you can push the envelope and try to get people out. One thing that's been interesting to me, though, is the health care exchanges are not really in a death spiral the way people thought they might. Part of that, I think, is due to auto-enrollment. Part of that is due to the subsidies and the strength of those. Um, but you can really see through California's example, New Jersey's example, other examples, what it might look
1: like. And another piece to watch is, you know, we've just seen over the last couple of years, redder and redder states Show interest in expanding Medicaid, and a conversation in Congress. We've seen a little bit. I mean, not like a full blown debate yet, but we've seen bills introduced um, to incentivize that even more, to to make it even more attractive for the holdout states to implement a Medicaid expansion and get and get the federal uh, match, enhanced federal match. And so, um, should that happen, I think. Um, some more red states would do it. I think some will will never do it unless they're somehow forced to by a new law being passed. But um, uh, that's another piece of it as well that could make a big difference in um, reducing the remaining uninsured population.
0: I find it in some ways ironic that California is sort of the poster child for making the Affordable Care Act work when California is having this huge fight over whether to do their own single payer or not. (laughs) It's
2: like, but if you want to bring this full circle, I mean, the presidential debate is on should we do Medicare or how should we do Medicare for all and how should we should pay for it? And we're discussing how hard it might be to reinstate a mandate or expand <laughs> subsidies in 2020 Absolutely. if there's a Democratic president. I mean, that's really what the health debate in 2021, if there's a Democratic president, would look like. It would be reinstating the mandate, expanding subsidies, fixing the family glitch, um, uh, uh, on how subsidies are, are distributed. Those are the actual things that I think a Democratic president would try to do. Um, maybe they try Medicare for all once, and they realize it's not going to happen, and they move to something like that kind of a package. Yes, I had
0: had a story in the can from the day after the election in 2016 (laughs) about all the things that the Democratic president was going to do to try to make ACA 2.0.
2: Yeah, just Uh, change the dates
0: and some numbers, and you can publish that. (laughs) All right. Well, I've been a bit reluctant to talk too much about coronavirus, which now has an official name, COVID-19, partly because stuff changes really fast. uh, And partly because none of us is, you know, an actual medical reporter. But there are a lot of policy implications that go along with this outbreak, and we should talk about some of them. Uh, One is shortages. There are two kinds, shortages of things like masks, which are getting snapped up by panicking people and organizations and governments, uh, and are not necessarily getting to the places where they are needed. Uh, The other is potential shortages of what I call other medical stuff, particularly drugs and drug ingredients that come from China, which is seriously shut off from the rest of the world at the moment. I feel sometimes like the world is one big high school student never preparing for the test until the night before. <laughs> Should we have been better prepared for this? Will we ever be better prepared for a public health emergency?
3: You know, my colleague uh, Andrew Siddons did a story about the potential for drug shortages. This is something that's been predicted for a long time. We'll see what happens. Um, Anna issue a congresswoman who um, has a lot of influence on these issues. She came over and talked to us a little bit about how she's going to be pushing that issue forward. And then there was she, this...
0: She chairs one of the key subcommittees on the she Energy does. and
3: Commerce Committee, which oversees drugs. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And then there was the story out of Texas of this gentleman who's... Who, who makes produces masks. ...produces the mask and has said, come on, guys, I've been talking about this for 15 years. Right. They
0: just can't keep up with the production. They can't right. keep up with the demand that they're having now. Right, And yet, I mean, you know, we. I remember I so old after the anthrax attacks and, and after nine eleven, There was a big, I mean, about a year long, you know, pandemic preparedness, bioterror. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of money given to, to shore up public health, state and local public health agencies. I mean, there actually was thought about being prepared for this. It's like you would, I mean, there's this big national stockpile now. You would think that we would have like been stockpiling. Think, I mean, <laughs> drugs is one thing because they expire. I don't think masks expire. Right. right. It's and just, even just since
2: anthrax, there's been SARS and Ebola, and every time I think we've all sat in and swine flu and yeah, and, and we've, all, we've <laughs> all sat in hearings in which this has been discussed, yes. and you know we're the only reporters in the room. Um, it doesn't get a ton of national attention, but the fifth time's the charm, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I, I think um, I'll, I'll be watching this this uh, next week. Azar is testifying about the administration's response to coronavirus uh, in the House. So I think that'll be the opportunity to say, look, what are we doing here? What's the strategy?
0: Yeah. At the same time, the administration is proposing to cut the budget for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. (laughs) I imagine he'll get questions about that. All right, well, the second policy issue that arises from this outbreak is people spreading misinformation, case in point and I will say he's far from the only one, is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas who on Fox News repeated a discredited rumor about the possibility that the virus was originally manufactured by the Chinese government as a bioweapon. There seems to be an awful lot of fomenting fear of China and its citizens and Asians in general that make public health work harder rather than easier. Now, Senator Cotton walked back his claims later, but staffers at the World Health Organization have called the spread of lies and rumors an infodemic. I love that word. Uh, In this world where anyone can and does say anything on social media, is there any way to rein in bad information? I'm not sure that we're going to solve that on this podcast
2: today. (laughs) (laughs) But But we have smart
0: listeners.
2: (laughs) I I have seen Senator Cotton repeat that claim several times, and he's been careful to say that he doesn't have any evidence to prove that the virus started in in a laboratory and not um, in markets where health experts believe it was originated. His point is that he wants international experts to go in. But to your point about spreading false claims, he has no evidence to back up what he's saying.
1: And also, um, a lot of the anti-China rhetoric we're hearing from lawmakers and um, pundits that doesn't exactly help the cause of international cooperation. If what they want is the Chinese government to allow U.S. experts to go and be part of these delegations and investigate, going on TV and saying uh, the Chinese government is you know, is lying, uh, you know, created this on purpose, all, all of these things um, doesn't exactly make the Chinese government very feel very warmly and cooperative. And we've already seen that play out. We've seen the Chinese government criticize um, the U.S. travel ban and some of the rhetoric. And so I thought it was interesting that President Trump came out so strongly and praised uh, President Xi. Um, and I thought that was sort of an attempt to smooth things over and, and bring down the heat of the conversation.
0: Although we also have this I, – I keep hearing, you know, vague administration officials beating up on China for other things. I right. mean mostly 5G and Huawei and, you know, concern about, about that. And I worry that that's also sort of getting into the – I mean it is very – public health has to operate across borders. That's the only way it works. You can't really wall off a country, although China is doing a fairly good job of walling off a province at the moment. But it's uh, – but generally it, there's always this sort of tension between – Public health between international public health efforts and governments with other agendas—it's
1: just—and there's a lot of experts who say that the the uh, China-focused travel ban that the U.S. has implemented just doesn't make sense. Um, You know, already there it's spread so much beyond China's borders that um, to have a travel ban that only targets China, um, one gives the false sort of. Uh, impression that only Chinese people are carriers for this, which, again, has fed into some of the sort of racist panic we're seeing. Um, But also, you know, people are coming to the US from other places. And we already have, you know, confirmed cases in the US, in Europe, in other countries. And so um, I think all of this will be um, hopefully uh, asked at the upcoming hearing.
0: All right. Well, m- much more to come on this. That is the news for the week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Alice, why don't you go first this week?
1: So I chose a v- incredible and very upsetting piece uh, from Hannah Dreyer in the Washington Post called Trust and Consequences. It is about how migrant teenagers who come to the U.S. uh, and are held by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is part of HHS. So they, under that body, are required to see a therapist. This is part of a legal settlement about the rights of children who come to the U.S., Under the Trump administration, what the children are telling these therapists about their journey and their trauma from their home countries is being used against them in court by ICE. It's being shared with ICE without the consent of the child and without the consent of the therapist who who took these notes and is being used to argue for their deportation back to the place where, I mean, the protagonist of the story is a teenager from Honduras who uh, has a credible fear of being murdered by a gang if he is deported back. And
0: And legitimate fear of being murdered by a gang. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And so um, it's digging into this information-sharing policy um, and what happens when uh, these children feel like they can no longer talk to a therapist about what they're feeling and the consequences of that.
3: Rebecca? Just to piggyback a little bit on Alice, I was struck by that story, too. And this young man was telling the therapist, you know, yes, I saw terrible things. Yes, I was forced to participate in things that I would Regret, yes, I saw people cutting up bodies, and and they keep recycling those. Comments. Yeah, they
1: cherry pick from what he said and try to portray. And and the ice folks um, cherry picked, you know what he told the therapist and, and tried to use it to portray him as a dangerous gang member when he was saying, look, I fled to the U.S. because mm-hmm. I wanted to get away from this.
3: Mm-hmm. And his cousin was murdered, you know, during the whole process when he was back there. So it it was quite a story. Um, <clears throat> mine is the health system we'd have if economists ran things by Austin Frakt. So economists' opinions are, are pretty influential in the healthcare world. Uh, the CBO certainly dictates a lot of what Congress does. And so it was interesting to me to l- find out a little bit more about um, what they believe and what they support in terms of changing our healthcare system. This was a large survey that was done. Um, basically, they would keep a lot of the things that we have. They would keep Obamacare. They would not allow Medicaid work requirements. They would not convert Medicare into a voucher type system. They would do a lot of the things that we have now. Um, They would allow for higher premiums if you smoke or if you did unhealthy behaviors. And the one thing where they really went out on a limb and nobody's going to support this politically is what they've talked about quite frequently about the tax protections for employer-provided insurance.
0: When they were debating the Affordable Care Act, there was – I still remember this vividly. There was a hearing, but there was a huge panel of economists. There were like 10 of them from across the the ideological spectrum, from the most conservative to the most liberal, and they – every single one of them said, you really should get rid of the employer exclusion, tax (laughs) exclusion for health benefits. And I remember the look on the senator's faces. It's like, I don't think we can do this. (laughs) (laughs) Jen? Um so my story,
2: the headline is Inc. RX, welcome to the camouflaged world of paramedical tattoos. Um and this is really a story that you have to see the pictures for to get the full weight of it. But it's tattoo artist who does artwork um to help people through scars and other issues that they have um there's a picture of a guy who lost the tips of two of his fingers and the tattoo artist drew on essentially fingernails, um, but they look incredible. And it's a really interesting story of this tattoo artist who
0: does this, you know, paramedical tattoos. And I will mention it's a KHN story. It I is. I'm sorry. <laughs> by I forgot Anthony. to mention that. That's okay. It ran in the New York Times too. Uh, my story is from CNN, although it was covered by a lot of news outlets this week. It's called Nation's Largest Teachers Union's Call to End Active Shooter Drills Over Fears They're Traumatized. Students by Leah Asmalash. It's about a report from the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association in conjunction with the gun control group Every Town for Gun Safety. An estimated 95% of schools now run lockdown simulations, according to the Department of Education, but the groups in this report say that active shooter drills vary widely. They've included things like simulated shootings, like Shooting foam pellets, um, not telling students it's a drill until after it's over. And there's not much evidence that these drills are even effective at actually helping kids know what to do if there is an active shooter. So basically the groups are calling for fewer drills and restrictions on the types of drills that schools should be doing. I mean, this is something that obviously has grown dramatically in recent years and with not very much oversight. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthalloneword@kff.org all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Holstein. At Rebecca Adams, DC. At Jen Hab. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.